This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its colt. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, Yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies? Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany, and spent the night there. Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, boy, I sure wish we were all together in person, but I am thankful for the technology that allows us to do something like this, to gather together virtually online. So welcome, Sounds of the Bible Church. Welcome, uh, Martha Lake Baptist Church, as we're doing these worship gatherings online together in partnership. I'm thankful for uh, both congregations, thankful for this opportunity to set aside some time and turn our attention to the Word of God and to Jesus, our King. And if you are... Uh, just scrolling past on Facebook and happened to catch this. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors of Sound City Bible Church and just want to say welcome. And uh, if you want to stick around and watch and listen to the things I and we have to say, uh, hopefully you would hear uh, that we really love Jesus a lot because he has really loved us a lot. And hopefully you hear that we are a family because Jesus has made us a family, that the church is not a building. The church is not even an event that you attend. The church is a people that you belong to who are united by faith in Jesus Christ. So even though we're distant and apart from each other right now, we still are the church. You still are the church uh, right now in your living room, in your footy pajamas. Uh, we are still the people of God. And, and I'm excited today to spend a little bit of time focusing on Jesus and a particular moment in his life. It's, it's the Sunday in the year that we refer to as Palm Sunday. 
For, for hundreds of years, followers of Jesus have been setting aside this day to commemorate the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem for his last week of earthly life and ministry before his crucifixion on Friday and ultimately his resurrection on Sunday. And Palm Sunday uh, is an exciting day. It's a celebratory day. And uh, so I'm thankful to have this opportunity to look at this story and to unpack some things for us. And I think you'll see that even in light of our current cultural moment, all of the fears and all of the troubles that we are experiencing due to this uh, global pandemic, uh, that there is still hope to be had in Jesus, the King who offers us true salvation. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive into this passage in Matthew 21. So would you pray with me uh, from your home right where you are right now? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, even though we're scattered about, about. Lord God, I ask and I pray right now that you would remind us that we are united to you and to each other by faith and through the working of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, I pray that you'd help me to only teach that which is uh, truthful and in line with your word. And God, I pray you'd give each and every single one of us hearts that trust in you more deeply as a result of our time together today. So we give this time to you. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, I want you to imagine that you turn on the news or you're scrolling through social media and there's a big important alert, a big important announcement right now. Some government official, uh, some you know governor, president uh, goes on, on the record and says, you guys, we did it. We've beat the coronavirus. You all are free to leave your homes. And everyone rushes out of their homes and goes to their favorite gathering place. Maybe it's a, a restaurant or maybe it's a, you know, a shopping center. Maybe it's you know, CenturyLink Field and everyone gathers in there and, and I come running in there and I, I, I see all the crowds and I see all the people and I, and I pipe up my, my singing voice and I say, celebrate good times. And then right now in your living rooms, everybody just said, Come on, because that song is 40 years old. And over the last four decades, that song has been essentially baked into our cultural consciousness. Thank you, Cool and the Gang. You can, you, you don't even have to sing it. You could just say it. Celebrate good times. And somebody in your office, somebody in your house, somebody in your neighborhood is going to go, come on. They're going to say it. Because we have this shared consciousness in a moment of celebration, we know uh, something culturally shared that we're going to use to celebrate. Now, it's a silly analogy, but something kind of like that is happening here in Matthew chapter 21 when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. There are some things that Jesus is doing. There are some actions that he is taking that trigger For the Jewish people of the day, the first century Jewish people, it triggers in them a collective cultural response. They start to sing from the Psalms and they start to quote from the prophets. And as you're going to see, Jesus is doing something really, really intentional. In fact, I want to make a a pretty bold claim to start this teaching time. I want to make a bold claim that in this moment, Jesus is making the claim that the entire storyline of the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible up to his day, had now reached their culmination. They've now reached the point of climax in the story, and Jesus is saying that he himself is the final stage in the story of the people of Israel. 
It's a big claim, I know, but, but I'll show you what I mean as we, as we go through here. But, but you have to remember the story of the people of Israel. It begins with Abraham and, and God choosing him and, and making a promise that it would be through Abraham's family that all nations on the earth would be blessed, that all nations on the earth would be redeemed and brought back into right relationship with the one true God. And Abraham has a son, and that son has sons, and then the family grows, but the family eventually becomes enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up a prophet named Moses to to free them from slavery. And now they're a large people group, and they're set free from slavery, and God raises up a military leader, a a chief, almost a king-like figure named Joshua, or Yeshua, who Jesus is named after, to lead the people into the promised land. But then there's several hundred years where there's no king and there's no good leadership. It's the period of the judges. And if you were around at Sound City Bible Church a few years ago when we taught through the book of Judges, you'll know just how much of a dark time it was. And there was no king and there was no good leadership. And they were crying out for a king. And so God gave them King David. And he was the king who had a heart that only worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel. And for a brief, brief window of time, the nation of Israel looked like what God had promised that they would be. But then David sinned grievously, his son Solomon sinned grievously, and then Solomon's sons and and beyond just sinned and led the people into all sorts of wickedness. And for hundreds of years, God sent prophets to warn the people of Israel that they were violating the covenant. They were not being faithful to the God who loved them like a husband. And you can read these these words of the prophets like Isaiah and and Jeremiah, and, and they were giving these words of warning, but the people wouldn't listen. And after centuries of patience from the Lord God, he made good on his threat and removed them from the land. And the southern tribes of Judah were sent into exile in Babylon. But God also made a promise of redemption and restoration. And so after the period of time, the, the 70 years of exile, they were brought back into the land and, and, and the people thought, okay, good, it's, it's, it's game on again. But then you might know from history that, that from the time of the return from exile, they never really experienced the, the flourishing and, and the well-being that was expected to be for the people of God. And there was even just a brief little window of time where the Jewish people achieved their own independence, but now Rome is in charge. And, and their nation, the nation of Israel, has a, a, a puppet government set up, and it's Roman governors, and, and people are frustrated, and they're still waiting for this long-promised king who would show up and who would make everything right and who would fulfill all these promises of God. It all hinges on this, on this king, on this one person. And after the return from exile, there's a specific prophet, a prophet whose name is Zechariah. So he lived a little bit after the time of Daniel. He lives back in Jerusalem in Judea. And he's prophesying to the people. He's like, hey, we're back from exile, but we're still walking in unfaithfulness to the Lord. We still need to be faithful to God. We're not doing it. And so he begins to prophesy that there would be some more judgment but then he also starts to speak of a day when God would raise up this, this ultimate king. 
And Zechariah calls him the branch. He uses the same sort of language as Isaiah and Jeremiah. This, this branch, the, the tree of Israel has been chopped down and, and there's this one little branch, this one little shoot that's going to rise up and become the promised king who will bring deliverance. And, and when Zechariah starts to prophesy about this stuff, Zechariah says, you know, he, he's going to do some things. When this, when this branch shows up, he's going he's gonna to fix the temple. The temple's all messed up and it's not, there's not true worship of God going on. And so Zechariah is going to fix, I'm sorry, the, the king, Zechariah says, is going to fix the temple. And then Zechariah says he's going to draw people from all different nations unto himself. That original promise given to Abraham of being a blessing to all the nations of the earth is going to come through this ultimate king. And then he also says, Zechariah says this really unusual thing. He says that this king will also be a priest. There will be a priest sitting on the king's throne. And friends, that's really unusual. That does not happen according to the governance of Israel that was given through Moses. It would be like if I said the president is a Supreme Court justice. You would say, wait a minute, that's separation of powers. That's the executive branch, the judicial branch. They're not supposed to be mixed like that. It's, it's kind of like that. Priests and kings aren't going to you know, be in the same uh, area of jurisdiction. But Zechariah says, no, this king is going to be not just a king, he's going to be a priest, and he's going to bring healing, and he's going to be a prophet who teaches us how to follow the ways of the Lord. And it culminates in Zechariah chapter 9 with this promise. It's a call. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. No, 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 not just a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's going to be this ultimate king that you're looking for, but he's going to be a humble servant. Zechariah made that promise a few years, a few, sorry, a few hundred years, I should say, before the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. So when Jesus enters into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, knowing that this is him heading toward the cross, we read these words. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, just say, oh, the Lord needs them and he'll send them at once. Um, <laughs> you, you think about those disciples being given that task. I just take them and just say, oh, the Lord needs them. He'll send them back soon. I tried that with my neighbor's car the other day. It didn't go well. So just food for thought. Verse four, this took place, Matthew says, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes Zechariah, Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. And they brought the donkey and its foal, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. See, Jesus is doing this on purpose. Friends, 
Jesus is intentionally riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to make a statement to say, do you remember all of those things that Zechariah said hundreds of years ago? The, the promised branch that would, would be the culmination of the storyline of the family of Abraham and the king known as David? It's happening now. Jesus is doing this on purpose to say, I'm the king, and I'm here to bring salvation and rescue and redemption for my people. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, Oh, it's that prophet Jesus, you know, from way up north, in, in, from Nazareth in Galilee. This, this crowd comes rushing out. They see what is happening. They have heard about Jesus. They see the action that he is taking, and they respond with the celebrate good times come on of their day, Psalm 118. And I won't go through all of Psalm 118 right now, but it's, it's a psalm that praises God for bringing salvation through his king, not through uh, earthly kings and rulers. And I'm thankful that, you know, as we were singing and going through those verses, we were able to look at some of those verses. I would encourage you just to read Psalm 118 this week in your own time. But there's a particular word that's used in here. It's this word, Hosanna. In the Hebrew, it's Hoshiana. It means, please save us. Please save us. But that's what it means at the pure grammatical level. Scholars and linguists will tell us that even from the beginning, it took on this, this um, element of confidence. It's not, please save us in the true pleading sense. It's like a confidence, like a, please save us. Come on. It actually, this might sound silly. It's kind of like the, come on from celebrate good times, right? Celebrate good times. And then you say, come on. It's a request, but it's like a confident request. It's like, I know you're going to come on. We're, we're going to celebrate the good times together. Okay. I've just completely ruined that song for you all. I'm sorry. It's a request, it's a plea, but there is confidence behind it. They are saying, Jesus, you are the king, and we are confident that you are here to bring salvation. You're here to restore Israel to its former glory, to get rid of the Romans, and let us live the good life. So what's the first thing that Jesus does? Verse 12, Jesus went into the temple, and he threw out all of those buying and selling. The first thing that Jesus does, like the prophet Zechariah told, is he would fix the temple. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The house of prayer line is from the prophet Isaiah. The den of thieves line is from the prophet Jeremiah. He's quoting the Hebrew scriptures. Again, he's saying all of those prophecies are about me. And like Zechariah said, I'm here to clean house in the temple and restore right worship of God. Then, verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And friends, this is a priestly act. If you have time, if you ever read through the book of Leviticus in particular, you will notice that there is a lot of the priest's work and occupation and function that looks an awful lot to us like medical care. That priests, in addition to teaching the word of God and leading worship, would also care for people's physical bodies in certain ways. And when Jesus shows up and he is healing people in the temple, he is acting as a high priest. So here he is, the one who is riding on a donkey like a king and going into the temple and establishing right worship and healing like a priest. This is an amazing claim that Jesus is making. Verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Well, these religious leaders were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Friends, sometimes the most biblical response to Jesus is children shouting in the place of worship. Just think on that for a little while. He said, have you never read? And he quotes from Psalm 8 that you have prepared praise from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, and he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he spent the night there. What a scene. What a scene. Jesus is quoting the Hebrew scriptures like there's no tomorrow. He is enacting things. He's doing things that is demonstrating that he is God's promised king who is here to bring salvation. And I want to focus in on this idea of Jesus bringing salvation to people who are crying for help because this really is, this Hosanna really is at the center of why Jesus did what he did. This Hosanna is a cry for help and rescue and salvation. And like I mentioned, these people really were suffering in many ways. In their day, in their culture, the Romans ruled over them with an iron fist. There were famines, there were wars, there were plagues, there was the threat of crucifixion. And on just a good day, you had to pay burdensome taxes to the Roman government with other tax collectors skimming extra off the top for themselves. It was not widespread happiness in this part of the world in this time. And people are crying out to Jesus to do something about their earthly situation. And I want to point this out because sometimes, especially for those of you who have been Christians for a while and you're a little more familiar with the Bible, we can miss what is being said in the text. We can jump over what is actually being said in the text and make assumptions. When we read language about rescue and help and salvation, we read it always in this ultimate salvation sort of sense, and we miss that a large 
portion of the biblical cries for salvation are from real life, flesh and blood, earthly circumstances. Job cries out for salvation and relief from his suffering. The slaves in Egypt cry out for salvation and redemption and freedom from their slavery. David is crying out for rescue and salvation from Saul and and other enemies. The poor and the oppressed and the orphan and the widow and the immigrant are crying out for justice from those who would take advantage of them. And the exiles are crying out for salvation and return from Babylon. Friends, I I want to remind you and I want to start with the idea that it is not wrong to cry out to the Lord for help in the middle of life's problems. It is not wrong to say, my circumstances right now are really hard. Lord, would you please save me from these circumstances? Jesus does bring help and rescue and relief in the here and now. Jesus does heal people, and so we pray for healing. Jesus does set captives free from real bondage and slavery, and so we we work against things like sex trafficking and modern-day slave trade. Jesus really does take care of the hunger and the needs of the poor, and so that's why we give gift cards and groceries to the Edmonds School District and send a team to Mexico to go feed the poor. Jesus cares about our earthly lives, and yet we must recognize, we must hold intention that the best among the pages of the scripture always recognize that there's a need for a greater salvation. Job says, even if my flesh is destroyed, I'm confident that I'll still see God, and I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, He will stand on the earth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Hey, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, our God can save us from this fiery furnace. And he will. But even if he doesn't, we won't worship your idol. Because they knew that there was an even greater salvation. Jesus says, Hey, don't be afraid of people who can just destroy your body but can't touch your soul. Rather, you should fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said that. Like, like, yeah, it's fine. Like your, your body could be destroyed, but there's an even bigger problem that you need to consider. And, and, and the apostle Paul says, you know, outwardly we're wasting away and yet inwardly we're being renewed. And friends, we have to hold this intention. What I just said a moment ago is absolutely true. Jesus does bring help and relief and salvation, if I can use that word, in the here and now, but sometimes people miss out on the ultimate salvation that Jesus offers because they are too focused on the here and now. 
There's a ditch on both sides of the road. We can be so focused on ultimate salvation that we neglect to care for the real problems, the the real day in and day out problems of this life, or we can be so focused on those problems and helping people in in need uh, in the earthly level that we forget to tell them that there's an even greater problem, that we're all sinners who are separated from God and that there is a day of judgment coming in unless we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus, there is an even even greater destruction coming in the future. See, this is why the cross was so jarring for for the people of Jerusalem in this time. I don't want to make too much of it because it can be overstated, but there is a crowd on Sunday crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David. And then just a few short days later, there's a crowd on Friday crying out, crucify him. It's probably not the exact same crowd, but it's probably not two completely separate groups of people either. See, the people wanted the victorious king, but they didn't want the suffering servant. They wanted the conquering king who would defeat Rome, and then when they saw that he was arrested and being tried by Rome, they said, oh wait, never mind. They wanted Rome defeated. They didn't want to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. And see, friends, in the cross, Jesus not only judges the problems of this world, but he defeats the greatest enemy that humankind has ever known, death itself. Jesus goes on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to reestablish a right relationship with God, to establish a new covenant in which anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can have right relationship with God. And then friends, Jesus not only died, he rose again on the third day to prove that all of his claims were true. And he is resurrected and now he has ascended and he sits at the right hand before the throne of our God above, making intercession for us and and always living to draw us closer to him and to make us more like him until that day that we see him face to face. See, friends, here's the thing. Other people can offer some forms of salvation. Again, if you let me use that word. Uh, a, A good judge can render a good judgment to help protect a a sufferer from injustice. But Jesus can pardon us from our guilt against a holy and perfect God. Uh, uh, um, A government can offer a financial stimulus package or whatever it's called and can issue funds to help people get through these crazy economic times. Jesus offers us the riches of heaven, a share of his own inheritance that he earned by his perfect life. A doctor can bring salvation in the here and now through medicine and through, through healing and through uh, wisdom and wise medical practices. Jesus says that if we put our faith in him, he will raise us up on the last day and we will be given imperishable bodies. That's a greater salvation. Do not hear me pitting these two things against themselves, but do hear me saying that one is more significant than the other. Only Jesus claims to offer eternal life and right relationship with God. And so I just want to close by asking you, you know, we're in a season 
For, for most of us, these are unprecedented times of uncertainty. For some of you, these are unprecedented times of hardship. And I want to ask you a question. Do some soul searching. Who or what are you trusting in for ultimate salvation? Who or what are you trusting in at the, at the deepest part of your heart? Where do you look for salvation it's fine to say, hey, I'm sick. I need to go to a doctor. It's fine to say, hey, I'm going to file for unemployment. There's nothing wrong with those things. But even those actions can be done and should be done for the follower of Christ in a way that still says, Jesus, you are my ultimate salvation. So let me close with, with four thoughts briefly. Four things for you to do in light of this. Where is my ultimate salvation? The first thing I want you to do is just want to invite you to test your heart. Test your heart. See where does your ultimate trust lie. And in order to do that, you're going to have to get alone. You're going to have to be quiet. I know it might be hard in your house with everybody there. But you're going to need to ask yourself some tough questions. And in fact, this this is a maybe a maybe as close to a surefire way as, as you can get to testing your own heart. Imagine the worst case scenario you can. Now be careful with this. If you're already prone to anxiety and fear, maybe be careful with this. But what's the worst possible thing that could happen? You die. Someone you love dies. Even in that worst possible case scenario, can you still imagine being able to say, I have Jesus. He's my ultimate hope. He's my ultimate salvation. Friends, I have witnessed with my own eyes and ears moments when, when parents have lost a child, when, when the unthinkable has happened, when tragedies, this, this is a big scale tragedy. I've watched small scale tragedies in the lives of people and I have watched followers of Jesus be able to deal with the tragedy because they did have their deepest trust in Jesus. So test your heart. Number two, I urge you to cultivate childlikeness. I found it particularly interesting this week as I was studying and reading the element of the children being rebuked was kind of a new one for me. I hadn't really thought about the fact that the children kept the parade going into the temple, uh, much to the uh, irritation of the religious leaders of the day. The children kept the parade going longer, kept the party going longer, partially because they're just children. And they don't have maybe some of the same burdens that we do. It reminds me of Ecclesiastes when it says, the more you know, the more trouble there is in life. These children have a simpler mindset. They're not worried about proper protocol in the temple. And they're not worried about the tax burden from the Roman government. All they know is there's Jesus. He's awesome. We need to sing. And I think that some of us could really benefit from developing some more childlike trust in Jesus. I am not saying to be immature or foolish. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am saying Jesus commends these children for keeping the party going, keeping the worship going, keeping the trust going longer than others. Number three, regularly remind yourself of the eternal perspective. This situation that we're dealing with right now is un. Unprecedented. 
scholars and, and researchers and scientists and sociologists and um, you know economists, everybody are saying, yeah, this is unprecedented. The effects are going to last for a long, long, long time. You know what's going to last for a really long, long time? Eternal life with Jesus. Eternal life with Jesus is going to last for a really long time. So let's fight to keep that perspective. And then number four, I want you to pour your life out on behalf of others. When we talk about dealing with the suffering and the problems of the here and now, one of the best ways that you can respond to what Jesus has given to you, that ultimate salvation, is to be like Jesus, to bring healing and comfort to those who are in need. And it's a great way to get your eyes off of yourself, your own self-focus, your own uh, predisposition towards fear or worry or control or some of the other things we've talked about the last couple of Sundays. If you're going to pour out your life for the, allevi- uh, the alleviation of suffering for someone, do it for someone else, not for yourself. Caring for the poor and the needy is a great way to respond to the ultimate salvation that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And so we say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In just a moment, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Steve from, from Martha Lake to lead us in a time of communion. But before we do, let's, let's pray together. God, I ask for salvation. We ask now, would you save us, Son of David? Lord, on the, on the earthly level, on the human level, we pray. <coughs> we pray for relief and for rescue from this virus. We pray that you would bring an end to this crisis sooner than later. We pray that you would give wisdom to the medical professionals and to the financial professionals and to the government leaders who are trying to navigate this. But Lord God, I pray more than any of that, that you would use this time to, in the ultimate sense, save a lot of people. That a lot of people out there, and, and even us, Lord God, who are already followers of you, would you help remind us that we cannot ultimately trust in princes and chariots and horses and the things of this earth, like the Bible says, but that, Lord God, you alone must be our trust. So would you help us, I pray? Would you save a lot of people? Would you let us share the hope that we have because of Christ Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, We're going to prepare now to celebrate the Lord's table together. So take a few minutes and gather the elements together if you haven't already. And while we do so, let's consider communion. Let's think about it. As we were reminded this morning, true and eternal salvation can only be found in Jesus. It's by grace, through faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross, that we were saved. Paul reminds us that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it's in his sacrifice that we remember when we take communion. So as we get together and we've got the elements ready, let's consider Paul's words to the church at Corinth. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Church, let's heed Paul's admonition, and let's take a few minutes in silent prayer, examine ourselves, confess our sins to God, and then when you're ready, drink of the cup, eat of the bread, and then we'll come back together and we'll sing in celebration of what God has done for us. I love you, church, and I can't wait till we meet again face to face.